Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is self and community. My guest is Shelley Tagielski, who is a mindfulness meditation teacher and also the founder of the global grassroots mutual aid organization, Pandemic of Love, which is responsible for over $54 million in contributions to needy individuals with no overhead or administrative fees. She is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. Shelley is based in Florida, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Shelley. It's an honor and a privilege and a great pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's so great to be here with you. You have a wonderful story, and it really involves the interpenetration of self and, and community. I suppose one might say it's in some sense based on the Buddhist idea that when we think of who we really are, we really are everyone and everything. Yes, 100%. You, you totally hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. I, I definitely see myself as um, interconnected and interwoven with all sentient beings on this planet, for sure. It's not just for you a philosophy or an idea, which it is for me, certainly. I talk <laughs> about it all, all the time. You have really translated that into uh, social action and into really a global social action movement. Yeah, well, I will say that it wasn't something that I set out to do. <laughs> I didn't like think to myself, oh, how, how can I, you know, translate this and create a global, you know, movement or, or create a, a community uh, on the beach or, you know, in any of the iterations in, in which this played out. I think that where it really sort of stems from is it comes from the purity of um, two things. One is, always um, showing up, which I think, and I talk about in the book, being the most important thing that we can do in life is to show up. And the second thing is to always, when we show up, come from a place of love, right? So ask yourself the question always, how do I come from a place of love? And so I think when you kind of fuse those two main tenets together, you can't lose, you know? If you're always showing up and you're always coming from a place of love, then it's coming from a pure place and it seems to always attract, you know, other like beings into your space and people who want to gravitate towards that, you know, energetically. Well, that certainly seems to be the case for you, but I think it would be useful for our viewers and listeners to appreciate that there was a time in your life when I, I think you really felt like things were out of control and you couldn't even care for yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, there were, you know, I think one the lowest point in my life, I would say, um, was post-divorce. Um, I was um, 
you know, I was very lost. I was lost in terms, I felt like a failure. First of all, I felt like a failure because I had gotten a divorce. Uh, I wasn't the big rousing success that, you know, I thought I would be coming out of, out of college. You know, you kind of like have these aspirations that you're going to, you know, just make it on the scene, so to speak. And, um, and I felt like, okay, now here I am a soldier just kind of falling in line and, and living this life that didn't even feel like my life that I was living. Do you know what I mean? Felt like I was like living somebody else's life. And so very much in that case, I felt out of control. And then, um, you know, as I was going through my divorce, as I was going through these like really kind of dark periods, instead of turning towards community, I actually turned inward, but not in a healthy way. Uh, just kind of turned inward in a in a way where I kind of isolated myself from others, isolated myself from, um, you know, from connection, which is desperately what I really needed. And as a result of that, my my physical uh, body just gave out. And I woke up one morning and I lost my eyesight. I was blind, totally blind. I could not see a thing. And I was never more terrified in my life because I, I, first of all, didn't know what I had and didn't know if I would ever get my eyesight back. And eventually I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. And I was told by the doctor who diagnosed me that I had a condition that was the leading cause of blindness in people under the age of 40. And when I was told that, you know, most people would say, wow, that sounds like, you know, you're kind of given this sort of death sentence, you know, you were, you were given this curse. Uh, I was 27 years old at the time, as I mentioned, with a, with a toddler son. And in fact, that uh, diagnosis and that sentence wound up being one of the greatest gifts of my life. One of the greatest gifts of my life, that, that box of darkness, as Mary Oliver calls it, um, because it really put things you know, pun intended, I guess, into focus for me, you know, it put things into focus for me where I realized that I do have agency over my own life, that I do have the ability to acquire tools and um, use the tools that I uh, was sort of not uh, in practice of using and that I that I could uh, take control over my life and my destiny and that destiny didn't have to be, you know, left to chance, that it very much could be choice, my choice, how I wanted to show up, how I wanted to live my life, how I wanted to be a mother and, um, you know, what I was going to do with my eyesight uh, again, once it was restored, which it was eventually uh, I still have the disease. I still struggle with it on a daily basis. But um, but when my eyesight was restored, you know, I thought, okay, um, I can't squander another moment. I can't waste another minute. I can't pass beauty and just like not notice it anymore. I have to, you know, really um, just savor, savor every moment as much as I can and every detail. And, uh, and that was a great gift in that. Now, I gather from your book that one of the first steps that you took to bring yourself out of this 
dark place, literally a dark place, was uh, to begin a process of journaling. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've always been a journaler, right? I talk about the book, uh, in the book, about how I have literally boxes of journals, starting with the first journal that I got, I think, in like third grade on my birthday, which was like a pink journal with like ponies on it and a little lock that anybody could pick and get, get into. But um, so I've always been somebody who journaled and I journaled mostly to, to sort of, um, you know, detail my day, detail like what happened. And so it really just became sort of like uh, this habit of, of just putting down like the, uh, the things that happened as opposed to sort of the emotions that maybe came up during the day, right? It wasn't like this um, practice of self-awareness. And what shifted for me was when I, um, when I was diagnosed, when I got sick, when I finally was in my own apartment um, with my son, um, you know, as a single mom at that point, that I started a new journal and a new practice. I found um, a few prompts um, online and I thought, okay, I'm going to modify these a little bit and I'm just going to start answering these particular questions on a daily basis because they resonated with me and they I felt like I needed to enter this period of excavation. Like I needed to excavate all of the BS, right? Like that was literally layered for years. And I needed to just get to the root of what was underneath that. Like where, where was all this trauma coming from? Where was all this rage coming from? Where was all this, um, you know, these issues with self-esteem, where were they coming from? And could I really start to think about um, all of these instances in my life, these snapshots, these memories that I kind of stored up over my life in a, a completely different frame, in a different lens? You know, could I put on different lenses and view these moments of my life and, and use that as a portal or as a roadmap to uh, eventually what would become my healing? And the answer to that was a resounding yes. At the same time, I gather that this is something you could do all by yourself alone. Uh, you, it took you a while to begin to reach out to other people because uh, yeah. especially growing up in the United States as, as, as you did when your family moved from Israel, that... Yeah. We are an individualistic culture. We're taught, you know, not to be a burden on other people. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, I it was very much. A, I think it was important for me to to start, you know, with the sort of the least common denominator, right? With my with myself, because I think when we show up in ways that are when we're not fully showing up, when we're not showing up, at least in the process of healing, then we're, we're sort of sullying and tarnishing everything else around us, right? So I think there's a sense of responsibility too, to first like have some semblance of like self-awareness first. And so that was one part of it. 
I recognized that, you know, as I was sort of going through this journaling process, as I was starting to pick up the pieces of my life, so to speak, I realized that um, I had isolated myself from so many people that wanted to help me because I thought, my God, if I ever ask for help or if I accept help, then that ultimately means that I'm not enough, that I'm insufficient, right? And like you said, that that I'm a burden on other people. And I also, you know, culturally, I will say that, um, you know, at least uh, the the matriarchal lineage where I came from also have this like martyr-like complex, you know, <laughs> where like constantly like, oh, I'll just do it. You don't need to help me. I'll take care of it, you know. And it's like, we just want to be martyrs for everybody, right? And so I had that as well, sort of like ingrained in my DNA. And so I had to really, um, you know, get to a place where I was self-aware enough of those those um, identities that I had to be able to say, no, no, wait a minute. I now am really struggling with something that uh, could render me blind. And I can't do this alone. I can't. You know, at the time I was suffering from, from time poverty. That was my, my biggest constraint as a single mom. You know, I, I had no time. I was working full time and you want to show up for your kid as much as possible. And yes, it, now all of a sudden I'm supposed to in the, in a 24 hour cycle, I'm supposed to get enough sleep, um, you know, prep my meals and my son's meals, meditate, journal, uh, exercise. I mean, who has time for all that? That's craziness, right? And so I realized that the only way that I would be able to take care of, of me so that I could show up for my son, show up for my community, show up at work differently, that I needed to, to ask for help from people within my community. And so I proceeded to, um, first and foremost, identify sort of what my aspirations were as it pertained to my self-care. Well, what are my aspirations? You know, physically, spiritually, mentally, etc. And then I had to really sit with that and say, well, what are the obstacles that are preventing me from doing these things? Why am I not doing these things right now? And, you know, there were various answers. Sometimes it was time. Sometimes it was money. Sometimes it was I didn't have the right equipment, etc. Or the right training, and, and then I recognized that I needed to share this list with somebody. I needed to be able to like actually take this physical piece of paper that I had where I wrote all this down and I proceeded to invite a group of, of 12 women who were also all mothers to my house. And I think they thought it was just like a wine tasting night or like a book club or something. <laughs> and I, and I just, um, I think surprised everybody when I when I just kind of blurted out like, okay, you know, hey, guys, like, I really need help. And that's why you're here. It's sort of like an intervention in a way, you know, and, um, and I want to share this plan with you that I put together. And I really need your help to figure out how I can start to to knock a few of these things off my list. And it was pretty amazing what happened, because it was amazing to see that all these other women also had their own lists that they were never getting to. They all had their own set of needs and their own set of obstacles. 
And we all had these different pieces of the puzzles that the other person needed. And, you know, in that conversation, in that meeting, we unlocked something. We unlocked the fact that together we're stronger and that we can share these pieces of the puzzle and everybody can be healthier as a result, right? Like the the rising tide lifts all ships, as Martin Luther King said. And so, you know, that's exactly what happened. That act of creating a, a public moment where you were with 12 other women and you asked yeah. for help, that was the seed moment that created yeah. this global movement. It was your willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. It was my willingness to be vulnerable out of desperation, right? Somebody might say, oh, what a radical act of like courageousness and you know boldness and bravery. And I would say, no, I was so terrified and so desperate to be healthy for my son that I didn't have a choice. And so my, my kind of my plea in my book is really like, don't wait till you're desperate. <laughs> don't wait till you're diagnosed with something to actually do this, you know, uh, but actually cultivate this before so that you could always have this like beautiful safety net that's there to capture you should anything happen. Well, I have to think that there must be millions of people, hundreds of millions of people out there in this situation dealing with health problems, yeah. dealing with family responsibilities, not having yeah. enough time or money. And of course, the pandemic only amplifies all of these issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the vast majority of every person on this planet, I'm not even just talking about in this country, <laughs> the vast majority of every person in this on this planet needs that type of a community, you know? It, and, and the truth of the matter is, is that I would maybe even be as bold and go so far as to say that every person, regardless of your socioeconomic status, right? Because you could throw a bunch of money at things, right? Sure, you could hire a nanny and get more time and you could hire somebody to pick up your kids and tutor your kids and do this and do that. But really, like, that's, it's not just about time, you know? It's like, are you connecting with people? Do you have connection with people? Are you, um, you know, having meaningful connections with other human beings? And that, that ultimately is something that, you know, that even though we may not have a lot of, you know, money that we can give to somebody. Well, the title of your book, Sit Down to Rise Up, implies, uh, the sit down portion of it implies medita yeah. meditation. I know meditation yes. became very important, is still very important to you. Let's talk about yes. that. Yeah, so meditation is the anchor. It's the anchor for everything. The breath is the anchor. Um, it's interesting because I really was just thinking about this the other day, like the evolution of sort of my meditation practice, right? So I started to meditate when I was um, a graduate student at Columbia University. It was in the late 90s. Um, I was introduced to the concept of meditation um, in a formalized way th through Robert Thurman, and eventually Sharon Salzberg became my teacher um, as I started to attend her meditation gatherings at Tibet House. And so... At that time, meditation for me was like a way to, um, I think, 
speak to God and source. Growing up as an Orthodox Jew, I was taught to um, speak to God in a very specific way. It was very like rigid, you know, like this is what you have to say. This is how many times a day you say it. This is when you say it. It was just very like rote and very, you know, prescribed. And this was kind of like a way for me to get a blank canvas and to have these like this spiritual connection, uh, this deep sort of, um, you know, moments of, of introspection even um, that I didn't have the opportunity to really um, ever feel, you know, through through um, the just culturally what was handed down to me. And so that was sort of like the the beginnings of it. And then what I found was that as I started to practice and learn more about mindfulness and about and and eventually, you know, got my certification in in MBSR, that um, I was able to control my flare ups that would happen in my eyes and that I was able to, you know, physiologically and like just physically control um, moments of stress and that I started to become more self-aware. My body really started to speak to me and to be very audible and tell me like, hey, nope, that, don't eat that. Don't eat that food or go to sleep right now. You need to, you know, or this is, this is hurting. And so I like really started to get these signals from my body. I started being connected to um, how to, how to kind of physically get myself back to health. And the mental effects of that were also great too. You know, I felt like, wow, I, I was able to kind of slow things down in the moment. And I was able to, to I found myself making uh, decisions very differently, you know, like the, 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 the sacred pause that was able to be inserted uh, before actually, um, you know, immediately sort of lunging into, into a, a decision, uh, right? Re- responding instead of reacting. And, and ultimately, you know, it wasn't until I came back to um, the original practice that I learned with Sharon in the 90s, which was metta, right? Loving kindness meditation, that the quality of my meditation really started to, to change. And I think I really started to change and shift as a, as a human being as well. Um, I started to practice uh, metta on a regular basis, and then now it's my primary practice, and really notice that um, the the level of compassion that I had for myself, that I had for others, um, for all sentient beings, as we started this conversation talking about, was so rich, was so uh, vast. And it was so informative about how I was, you know, informative in a challenging way. It challenged me to really think about every area of my life, my career, my, my, uh, relationships with my parents, my relationship with my, um, my then boyfriend, now husband, my relationship with my son, my relationship with my ex-husband, all of these different, you know, things started to sort of fall in line. And I started to show up very differently. People would say to me, like, you're, you know, something's different about you. Like, what's different? 
you know? And, and I, and I would be like, I don't know. I'm still the same person. And, and, but I really wasn't the same person. You know, I feel like my, my heart center, I felt like I always say this and it makes people laugh because people who know people who are like of a certain generation know what I'm talking about. And I think like certain, (laughs) like, like my son's like, what are you talking about? Right. Um, But I say like, I felt like this, I would, I would literally walk down the street. I felt like a giant, like care bear, you know, with like a heart on my chest and I would just kind of like be beaming like compassion to like people walking by and passersby in the street and like, you know, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be free from suffering. And it was just like this practice that started to really be present in my life off the cushion. And that became ultimately the through line of what informed my, my life, my work, and comes back to the original question that we talked about, which is like, how do I come from a place of love? And that's really the question that informs everything that I do um, in my life at this point. You referred to the uh, Buddhist practice of metta, uh, which I mm-hmm. don't think I've ever formally practiced metta, but I understand that basically your, your mantra is something like, may all beings be happy. Yeah, so you have a set of mantras. I mean, it could just be that one line, but for me, it's, um, you know, may you have joy and happiness. May you be free from suffering. May you have peace in your life. And may you ride the waves of life, no matter where they take you. And those are, that's it. And so sometimes it's may you be, may I be happy, may, you know, and it's, you in a kind of global sense where I'm like thinking about the whole world. And I will tell you this, you know, Jeff, like during, um, you know, the last presidential administration, um, I put myself in a, in a very uncomfortable position where I, I would sit and actually actively practice meta thinking about the former president. And it was so challenging for me to do that. You know, somebody who like comes from a place of love should be able to do that, right? With somebody who is super difficult and people would say, well, why are you even doing that? Why are you even trying to send meta? And I said, well, first of all, imagine what the world would be like if this person actually had joy and happiness and was free from suffering and had peace in his life, right? Imagine, imagine how different, <laughs> how different this, this individual would have grown up you know, to be. And um, because he's a suffering being, right? And so I I had this great difficulty. And I went to a friend of mine, um, Ethan Nickturn, who is a, you know, a great uh, meditation teacher. And I heard him talking about um, a, a Buddhist practice where you, you take the individual and you sort of make them younger in your mind. And so I, I started out with like the president the former president as like, you know, his age. And I took him as a teenager. Then I started to envision him as a 12 year old and then a five year old. And it was still challenging. And only when he was like a baby in a bassinet, did I finally get to the point where I was like, okay, I can work with this. I can work with like offering meta to this being, you know? Um, but it's such a beautiful practice because you feel like, oh, this is silly. Like, what am I doing at the beginning? You know? And then 
when you start to actually um, feel a kinship with like random people, I'm not talking about like people who are like easy to love in your life, right? And I don't mean like, you know, like people that you naturally love, right? But I mean, like when you, you know, uh, send meta to your dry cleaner, or send meta to your to the woman at the cash register, or send meta to, you know, the postman who you see on a daily basis. And then you suddenly start to feel this like kinship and affection to that person with that person, like for that person, in a very genuine way you start to realize like, whoa, what is happening? Like something is is shifting, something is changing because I really care about this person. You've described in your book uh, situations where you were in Israel, a country where you were born, as I understand, mm -hmm. and, and a country mm -hmm. where, where yeah. the Arab and Jewish populations have engaged in uh, murderous attacks against each other going back now over a hundred years uh, and and how you dealt personally with the fear and uh, also with the uh, connections that you made with people who uh, might otherwise be designated as your enemies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, I grew up in a very hawkish family, very right wing. In fact, many, 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 most, I would say, of my family in Israel is still very right wing. Um, and, you know, my family personally had, has been affected by a lot of loss of life uh, in wars and in terrorist attacks. And so it's a very real thing for us, right? Like, I, I personally know family members, cousins who I grew up with that were murdered uh, in terrorist attacks. And so, you know, it's I think it's easier to uh, fall into a place of like rage and anger and just kind of sit there and stay there for the rest of your life and then think, OK, I need to I need what I need to avenge this anger, you know, or, or make every decision from that place of anger from that place of outrage, from that place of grief and sorrow, instead of, you know, being self-aware enough to understand that, yes, I am having these emotions and they're valid emotions and these they're very valid, they're real, but I can use this energy to... I can use this energy and I can redirect it in a way that can actually prevent this from happening to any other family. And there's, you know what, there's this beautiful story as I'm telling you this, that I'm thinking about that I read in a book um, that father Gregory Boyle wrote. It's called tattoos on the heart. And he talks about this woman named Soledad. So Father Gregory Boyle's from L.A. He works in, um, you know, in inner cities of Los Angeles and with um, does a lot of incredible work with communities that are affected every day by gun violence. And this woman, Soledad, had, I think, like, as he tells a story in his book, like three or four sons. And one of them... Uh, gets killed, gets murdered, literally, like shot uh, in point blank range on the streets of the community where she lived. 
And she's feeling this deep loss and grief, of course. And her other son, uh, years later, gets shot and is in like a wheelchair. You know, he survives, but is basically changed for the rest of his life. And then the third son is the one that sort of kind of picks her up and says to her mom, like, you still have other living children. You can't like wallow in your sorrow every single day and anger and outrage and grief. Like you're not helping anybody. You need to put, here's what, put some lipstick on. Let's go live life. Cause you're still very much like, you know, among the living. And ultimately that son winds up being at the wrong place at the wrong time and gets shot as well and dies. And she just goes into this depth of like grief. She winds up having a heart attack, going into the ER. And as she's in the ER and she's finally stabilized, next door, like in the next kind of, it's not next door, in the next kind of like stall, you know, where there's like a curtain in between, they start, they bring in a few uh, patients from the ambulance. And one of them is actually a gunshot victim. And it, she looks over because they, it was like so quick that she didn't even have, they didn't have time to pull the curtain. It, she recognizes the boy that's on, laying on the gurney, bleeding to death. And it's the, the boy who shot her son, one of her sons. And in that moment, she says, I know my friends would have told me that it would have been okay for me to pray for that for him to suffer and to die in that moment. And instead, she says, my heart just broke open in that moment. And I started to cry and I started to pray to God that he should live and that his mother should not have to suffer the same grief that I had to go through. And it's such a beautiful story. And it just shows like how, you know, how much our hearts can actually expand you know, in these moments of anguish and grief and sorrow. And, and, and it's just, it's pretty amazing to like witness and to hear, you know, her relaying that story in that book because, and I, I hung on, I clung on to that story because as it pertains to like people in my family, there's like two sort of sides to the coin here. You know, I see those who have stayed with their anger, have stayed with their rage and their fear. And then I see others who have decided like, no, I don't want to live my life looking through this lens. And I don't want to be responsible for the loss of anybody else. And so I'm going to do the work that needs to be done to create bridges, you know, and stop othering. And, and that's really the side that I gravitate towards, you know? I gravitate towards wanting to tear down those walls and create the bridges because I think that, you know, I was gifted with the ability, unlike a lot of my cousins, to be able to have proximity. That's such an important word, proximity, uh, with the others, the people that were my perceived enemies, the people that I was told wanted to kill me, but I was actually able to sit with them in their living rooms and have tea with them and learn about their aspirations for their children and, 
you know, the fact that they just wanted opportunities uh, and they wanted their kids to be healthy and happy and all of these things that in Meta we wish on people. And so, you know, why aren't they deserving of that too? And how do we get there? You know, so, so it's, it's really, you know, interesting to me when I, you know, when I talk to people who, especially now in the, this kind of strange time that we're living in, you know, politically, I talk to people who are, um, you know, they're so defeated. They, they've lost all hope. They think that, oh, you know, nothing's ever going to change. This is the other side. Look what the other side is doing. And I think when you start to recognize that in a circle on this planet, you know, there, there are no sides in a circle. So, you know, we're, it's just one loop. It's one loop. And we've got to figure out a way. There is no other. We are. What we see in others, in that other, is what we fear in ourselves. And when we can actually get deep into that heart of the matter, then we can actually start to change things. I know you've taken a lot of inspiration from uh, earlier writers who have talked about the mutual aid movement. Yeah. Uh, in particular, you reference Kropotkin, uh, Peter Kropotkin, the anarchist socialist <laughs> yeah. in, in his writings. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, you know, I, I was fascinated by his writing because I, I remember learning about Darwinian theory and, you know, we default, we automatically think when we, when you hear Charles Darwin's name, because this is what you're taught in school, you think, oh, survival of the fittest, right? That's like our automatic kind of thing that we think about. And it's really fascinating because that's, you know, survival of the fittest is kind of what everybody, especially Western capitalistic cultures have hung onto as sort of like this proof that look, you know, evolutionarily, this is what happens in nature. And so too should it happen with humanity, right? So you look at like, you know, what's happening now with respect to like the wealth, you know, the, the gap that it exists between, you know, the super uber rich you know, billionaires and people who have nothing and the, the kind of wearing down of the middle class, right? But survival of the fittest. So, and so that, that's the way it is in nature. And when I, when I started to, um, you know, to, to look into the, to these works, I started to realize that, you know, um, Kropotkin, who, who wrote the book Mutual Aid, um, started to look at Darwinian theory and say, well, wait a minute, it's not just survival of the fittest and stop using that as an excuse for the way that, um, you know, you're organizing these cultures and societies, right? And, 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 and doing things that are immoral or setting up systems that are, that are immoral, but rather, you know, we need to look at nature and think about all the ways that nature coexists. Survival of the fittest is about survival, but coexistence, which is what mutual aid is, is about thriving. It's about moving beyond survival. It's about thriving. It's about looking at a, an ecosystem like a coral reef system where you can see very intricately how you know, the anemone and the coral and the, the um, 
crab and the eel and the, 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 the clownfish, how they all kind of have to coexist in order to survive and to thrive. And when one thing goes wrong, when the coral reef is bleached, or when there's an invasive species that is introduced to, to these waters, what happens? The, the, this, the ecosystem dies, and then nothing can survive or thrive. And so Peter, you know, looked at um, looked at this the Darwinian theory and said, no, I, I don't agree with this. I think that we need to focus more on how we can lean on each other in societies in order to survive and then thrive. And I was just, I've been fascinated with his work, which I read in, in the original, um, in, not in Russian, obviously, but I read the translated, you know, original uh, uh, verse, the original books, because I, you know, I wanted to really get to the kind of primary source to understand where we went wrong, <laughs> where we went wrong as a society. And what I can tell you is that, yes, we've gone wrong in a lot of different ways, but that I also have hope that we can, because um, it's because we see it happening often when things go wrong, when things like 9-11 happen, when there's a, a pandemic, when there's, um, you know, a natural disaster, a fire, a hurricane, et cetera. What happens? People just automatically come together. When we watch these like movies, you know, these blockbuster films, it's like, oh, there's a meteor and it's about to come to, to crush the planet. What happens? We get together. Mutual aid happens. Because I think naturally that's our that is the default mode that we sort of have to rediscover um and 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 just you know move into um building mutual aid into our systems. These systems that people are protesting in the streets for today, talking about how we want to dismantle certain systems that are, you know, you hear different versions that are broken or some that say that it's not broken, it's designed to work this way. But either way, these systems should be dismantled. Well, what are you replacing these systems with? And I actually think mutual aid is one of the answers to that question. Replace it with mutual aid in a very formalized way. Which is what you've done with the uh, organization Pandemic of Love. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Pandemic of Love was built for my community in South Florida. It wasn't built for, um, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't set out in my mind to do anything more than just tend to the area of the garden that I could reach, right? As the Buddhist proverb says. I, I, I wanted to help the people in my community who did not have enough. And I wanted the people who had an excess of enough to create this like redistribution of wealth, similar to this community of care that we talked about, right? Time poverty. Oh, you have time. Great. Now you can help, you know, cover some of my time poverty. And in this case, you know, it was the pandemic. The onset of the pandemic was March of 2020. And, um, we were being asked to uh, start social distancing. So it was a time of disconnection. And I thought, how can we connect people at a time of disconnection and make sure that every single person in our community has enough? And so I created two forms, very simple forms on Google, the give help form and the get help form. 
And I just posted them on my uh, social media pages. And what's interesting is that, you know, I went to bed and I didn't think that uh, any more than maybe like a few dozen people would have filled out the forms. When I woke up the next morning, there were hundreds upon hundreds of people who filled out the forms and who, um, you know, were asking for very tangible things like groceries and gas and, you know, please pay my light bill. People who were barely already making it before the pandemic that suddenly now found themselves without a job or, you know, furloughed, et cetera. And I had people who were like, this is great. I'm ready to buy, you know, grocery gift cards and pay these bills for this family because I can do that and it doesn't change my quality of life. And it was beautiful because, you know, what I found was that um, rather than uh, creating a structure that was um, that created like this middleman, right? Like a like a nonprofit would, for example, where, you know, oh, you know, send me your money and then I'll redistribute it to the people that I know that are in need. I thought, well, this is a time of disconnection where people um, can't help each other physically and they can't go volunteer somewhere, right? And so what, and, and people are in isolation. Some people are very lonely and they're alone. And so what, what a better way to kind of facilitate this than to connect them directly and to sort of have our organization just take a step back and say, look, we're just the we're just the matchmakers. That's our job. Our job is just to facilitate the match. We're meant to step out of the way and allow uh, connections to form. And that's exactly what has happened. You know, we've we've um, fast forward. We're now 19 months into pandemic of love um, and we've made over facilitated over two million connections and friendships have formed between these individuals, you know, across party lines, across uh, generational gaps, across uh, sexual, you know, gender, uh, you name it, race, etc. People have really leaned into connecting with, again, what they have been conditioned to think like, oh, that's the other person. And, and this goes back to that really great word, proximity. We created proximate spaces for people to be able to take that lens off, widen the aperture, and connect on the most basic way, which is through the human heart. Because uh, we all speak that same language through the human heart, right? When we kind of let all the words fall away and we just let our hearts connect, uh, beautiful things can happen. And so with those 2 million connections, uh, we've been able to facilitate uh, over $60 million of aid, which is phenomenal. It's amazing. It's a huge number. And, you know, when I say that number, it usually blows people away. They're like, that's such a lot. That's a lot of money. That's a crazy amount. And I say, yeah, yeah. But when you extrapolate it out mathematically, what we find is that actually the average donation from a person who is able to, to give was $135, not an insignificant amount, but really compared to 60 million, it's, you know, you're like, wait a minute. And it's a testament to how when a lot of people give a little bit, we can create a huge impact. Well, Shelly, 
Tagilski. This has been a wonderful conversation. I have to applaud you, and I know many people are applauding you for the work that you're doing. It strikes me that uh, you're the right person at the right time for the, for the right problem. And I have to also think that the internet is making things possible that in a previous era mm. would have been much harder because of the guardians yeah. of society. You can bypass yeah. all of that now. Yeah, no, definitely, for sure. But I do want to tell people that, you know, especially people who feel like, oh, I'm technologically challenged. And so for that reason, I can't start a mutual aid community. That's not true. Mutual aid started hundreds and hundreds and, you know, years ago. Uh, it's really like, think back to like the clans, you know, that used to live in like caves, the clan mentality, like mutual aid has always existed since the dawn of humanity. And so Really what this is, Jeff, is it's a hearkening back to um, wanting to get back to that time period that our grandparents told us back, which I talk, talk about in the book, called Back in the Day. Back in the day when things were simpler, when people knew their neighbors, when they felt a moral obligation and responsibility for the community, when it took a village to raise a child. And I think that we can get back there with or without technology. Certainly technology can, you know, help facilitate that. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, we don't need technology to discourage us from doing it either. Well, Shelley, thank you so much for being with me today. It has been a joy. And I know you're very busy now with uh, the book, but I, I hope we'll find future opportunities to bring you back to New Thinking Aloud. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate you having me. And thanks for, you know, using your platform to amplify my voice and to amplify the Pandemic of Love community. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.